welcome to Future Perspectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. I'm your host, Gabby Sanderson, and I'm here to talk with international film stars, upcoming talent, and industry game changers. Over the Future Perspective series, you will discover secret stories and inspiring perspectives on the future of cinema, culture, and society. So let's begin. This is Future Perspectives. Welcome to a very special episode of Future Perspectives. I'm Gabby and I'm thrilled to be sat down in Locarno with film critic, filmmaker and Locarno's professor for the future of cinema and audiovisual arts, Kevin B. Lee. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Gabby. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been a year since you were elected for this very prestigious position. Now, this is in partnership with the University of Lugano, powered by Swisscom. And this alliance strengthens the synergy between the Locarno Film Festival and the university. Carrying out research and teaching activities, your main research focus is the future of cinema, culture and society. So can you tell us, first of all, a bit about how this partnership interweaves? Yeah, sure. I, I sort of assumed that it was triggered by the pandemic, that uh, mm-hmm. the COVID-19 pandemic really put the Locarno Film Festival in, um, well, I don't know if crisis is too strong a word, but it's, you know, it's something to think about in terms of how does a film festival um, continue its operations in the midst right. of a pandemic when most cultural activities have been shut down? Mm-hmm. How does it recover from that period and how does it move forward into a future that is not just marked by the COVID pandemic, but such things as uh, digital transformation of culture, the virtualization of mm-hmm. uh, audience experiences, mm-hmm. and also a whole new set of uh, social and cultural concerns that the next generation has mm-hmm. uh, concerning sustainability, social equality, and so forth. How can this film festival that's been around for 75 years really take stock of this new reality? Uh, And this apparently was already on the minds of the festival board and the festival uh, leadership before the pandemic. And so they initiated this conversation with the university uh, Universitas Vitale Italiana. Now I get to now show off my, off. Yeah. my introductory <laughs> level Italian. <laughs> yeah, as a way to use the intellectual and research resources of the university towards this aim. I'm not a establishment academic, one can say. Uh, I have more of an arts background as well as a, a social media blogging background. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a question of how do those energies, which I think are really driving a lot of culture and knowledge in this day and age, how can that vitality be infused both into academia and also into an institution like the Locarno Film Festival? I've got a quote from uh, the president of the Locarno Film Festival, Marco Solari, and he says, a festival that stands still is dead. We will therefore engage deeply with the suggestions that Professor Kevin B. Lee will be giving us thanks to his decades of experience in digital media and with contemporary audiovisual languages. So you are internationally recognised in sort of this field and a pioneer in the video essay format. So I guess how's it been going when you've been kind of figuring all this out? Do you like being in the carno? Do you enjoy what you're doing? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I have more resources than I've ever had in my life uh, just to work with a, a really well-established university like the Uzi and with the Locarno Film Festival uh, with colleagues who are very open to ideas and suggestions and giving me plenty of room to try out things. So from the university side, uh, I introduced two courses in the, the first year, one being a video essay seminar, because this is really playing to my strengths and my backgrounds, what I've been doing for 15 years, and just seeing uh, how it could be used as a new form of writing and communication. Now, let's, th let's think that for centuries, students, when they're doing research or they're having to uh, do a final paper, it would be a written text. But yeah. now, why not have it in an audiovisual form? Why not have a video essay as your final report to show not just uh, your ideas, but also to use an audiovisual language that's so much more immediate, so much more vivid, so much more immersive and engaging mm. as a way to articulate thought. Audiovisual media and social media gets a knock for being superficial compared to, you know, traditional forms of communication. But I'd like to push back on that. I don't think we should rest too easily on this. You know, they said the same thing about cinema 100 years ago. What, is, what are these moving pictures? They're, gonna, mm -hmm. they're just going to, like, lobotomize the next generation of people where they're yeah. just, like, hypnotized and, and entranced by images and they can't think for themselves. But I think uh, cinema has really evolved in the last 100 years to be the supreme art form of the 20th century. So can't we think of how the audiovisual can be used as a way f not just for filmmakers but for all of us yeah. to express our thoughts and to really develop our ideas as best as possible. So that's the one class I teach. And then the other is Cinema Futures, which really I really see as a kind of a lab for myself to learn as much as possible. It's not about having all the answers because I don't think anyone does in this moment. And it's really a question of... Uh, what are the most um, compelling factors that are determining the future of cinema? How can we identify them? How do we name them? How do we explore them? Mm -hmm. Such things as virtual reality, artificial intelligence, algorithms, uh, streaming video and Netflix. Is this uh, replacing going to the cinema or mm -hmm. can they coexist and actually uh, symbiotically benefit each other? And also questions of social justice, equality and representation. Uh, who gets to make movies, whose stories are being told, and whose realities are being shared. So these are these are just very, very exciting questions to be asking. In recent years, especially since the pandemic, the landscape of cinema has made, as you know, some really dramatic changes. I mean, it's had to adapt, it's had to evolve in order to survive, right? But do you think the direction it was going in with even more streaming platforms starting to emerge pandemic or not, the outcome would have been inevitable? Oh, I don't think anything is inevitable right now. Oh, okay. uh, I mean, a year ago, uh, when we were looking at the, how profitable these streaming platforms were because of the pandemic, we thought, okay, this is it. Like, streaming is, Netflix is taking over. No one's going to go to the movies anymore. But what's happened in 2022 is these uh, companies have had a, a real crisis in sustaining their profitability, and they've actually had to cut down and, and reduce the number of productions because they're at such a scale that guess what post pandemic people don't actually want to be staring at their TVs as much as they were during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a new equilibrium that needs to be developed. Yeah. And there'll be other technologies as well. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is betting big on the metaverse <laughs> because platforms like TikTok are really taking over the attention of 
people who have been on Instagram or Facebook. So the the landscape is just constantly shifting Mm. and, and things are just constantly being disrupted. So what I can say as far as cinema is concerned is cinema is not going away. Cinema still has a role to play. It may not be as central a role as, you know, peak megaplex culture in the yeah. 90s or 2000s, but uh, it, it's still a matter of how it defines itself and, and what value and distinct quality of experience it can offer amidst so many other different ways for people to spend their time. Mm. Well, I imagine you've got way more in-depth statistics on this, but I did see that theatre admissions have been steadily recovering over the past year. I read in an interview that you did for a celluloid junkie, you said that you think George Lucas and Steven Spielberg may have been correct in 2013 when they predicted movie going would become more of a luxurious experience. So do you still agree with this? Do you think this is the direction that that, you know, going to the movies will take. Yeah, it's a possibility. And what informed that diagnosis at the time? It just seemed that Netflix was really carving up the middle. They provide great dramas, great comedies. And these are the types of films that people are just not going to the theater to watch anymore, Mm -hmm. uh, which actually coincides with uh, the Oscars and all the award-winning films that somehow just aren't nearly as profitable as they used to be. And aren't even getting as much attention as they used to be, even though they win Oscars. So this this tells you everything about where this kind of mainstream character and story-driven movies, mm. when you think about some of your favorite movies or probably films like this, are really migrating to streaming. And then what's left for cinemas are big-budget blockbuster spectacles mm. on the one hand. And then for a, a more discerning crowd that wants really great cinematic art... That's going to end up in museums and repertories, in small cinemas, and also micro cinemas. It's going to be a a relatively small but very passionate group of cinephiles Mm -hmm. who will create clubs or organizations or or circuits where they can kind of keep the flame burning for like a cinema that really pushes the boundaries of what's possible and really um, shows the the art form at its finest. Mm -hmm. So it it seems to be kind of going in these opposite directions. Mm. In a previous episode of Future Spectives, I spoke to head of Locarno Pro, Marcus Duffner, and we were talking about this emergence of a new uh, cinephile audience. And I'd love to know your thoughts on it. There is this new audience out there that are cinephiles that are not always attached to theatrical experience is important. It doesn't mean that they cannot also develop the theatrical experience afterwards because it might be a circle. I think it's really important. This uh, this has uh, driven structural changes, like mm-hmm. as I said, sales agent that usually picked up a film to sell it are now also financing, co-producing films, so have more responsibility into the film's life. It seems kind of strange to think of a sales agent becoming a producer. (laughs) Yeah, I I saw you nodding your head when we were listening to that clip. In terms of the new cinephile, how would you define a cinephile of today with all this variety which you've talked about? Well, listening to Marcus and thinking about how this relates with uh, my students, those who are passionate about film, and how cinephile culture has evolved in the last 10 or 20 years, uh, the first word that comes to mind is digital-centric. It's a generation that has grown up watching films 
on their laptops, not even their their TVs, because <laughs> yeah. the laptop is like the, the the device that they can control. Yeah, and and it's not even about watching the films in a digital format as opposed to going to a cinema, but also the the digital um, nature of communications of cultures. That this is the generation that's on Letterboxd, which is a website where people can show off their playlists, mm. demonstrate their knowledge, and make recommendations. So it's it's a very uh, specialized version of a, a social media platform for cinephiles. There's film Twitter, of course. There's also film TikTok. And, of course, YouTube video essays. So it's a whole culture of expressing appreciation and making recommendations that takes place through virtual social media platforms. And so it is a question of what role a physical site like a cinema has, yeah. uh, because those are in a very limited number of cities uh, around the world. So on the one hand, that's it's a bit uh, concerning. But on the other hand, before there was the internet, before there was social media, cinephiles almost exclusively lived in those big cities. And what we have now is a much more distributed, much more global, less urban-centric film culture that mm. finds each other in this virtual space. We know that movies shape cultural attitudes and points of view. Filmmakers may use their movies to influence audiences' perceptions and have a strong sense of duty to highlight themes that are prevalent in society and important to them. And we've got a really good example from a conversation I had with Todd Haynes here in Locarno for his episode of Future Perspectives. The urgency, I think, of wanting to talk about queer themes in my films was completely circumstantial with the AIDS epidemic when I was beginning my career moving from making short films to feature films mm-hmm. in New York City in the uh, end of the 80s. And it was a very scary time. It mm-hmm. was a very sad time losing so, so many incredible people so rapidly. To be in your 20s and to be watching that kind of death uh, surrounding you and watching a government reaction that was so incredibly slow and dismissive of it and a culture that was so panicked by it and so easy to assign blame to the Mm. gay community in particular for Mm. its existence meant that we had a role to play, whether it was politically, in activism, or in creative means, Mm. to respond to this time. Even, you know, years later, you can still hear the passion in his voice and this sense of urgency to get his message out there. And um, again, I guess with this new cinephile kind of audience, like when we talk about message films, then now there's even more ways to reach people, right? Yeah, filmmakers like Todd Haynes have really uh, revolutionized the values by which uh, films get evaluated than in a past generation. Listening to Todd Haynes talk about using film as a tool both for art and for activism and how the two worked together back in the 1980s and 90s. Yeah. It's it's fascinating to th- think about what it was like back then because it feels like we have even more crises to deal with now uh, with uh, you know, an environmental crisis that's not going away. I, I do a lot of thinking about how is film going to confront this, the conflict between artistic merit and um, a worthy content, worthy thematic content. I ask myself, how do these two actually work together or how will they in the future? How will the next generation of films, how many of them will have to deal with this uh, issue as it becomes more important? Mm-hmm. And how will they use it as a basis to not just convey a message, but do so in a way that inspires right. an artistic basis? 
Right, because, you know, maybe somebody doesn't check out the news every day, but they love movies and, and maybe this is a way of getting important messages out there. It's interesting hearing you talk because, yeah, 100 years ago, that's exactly what it was like, or, or even 50 years ago. People went to the movies to see the world yeah. and to have new perspectives, um, to, to experience things that they never had before. And now in some ways it feels like movies are behind. Um, oh, really? Yeah, social think? media. Well, when you look at TikTok, when you look at social media, there's just such an incredible diversity of human experience on display. Mm. And this has everything to do with driving such things as the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, climate activism. And movies in some ways have to rethink their position in terms of, okay, what can we offer that these other platforms cannot in yeah. terms of an experience that is richer and deeper than something that's like a 10-second TikTok video or a tweet. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is what cinema has to do, renew that proposition of, of depth and real quality to its audience mm. to, to factor into these conversations. I suppose with social media, it's so instant, right? I mean, now everybody's a content maker. And do you think because of this huge variety of content that, you know, anybody can check out at our fingertips, is that making it harder for movies to stand their ground and have their place and, and be at the forefront as much as they say were? I think it's also important not to think of it as a binary issue, certainly for movies to think about how they can leverage social media to drive people into into audiences. I think there are many opportunities for movies to tap into the power of social media. It doesn't have to be either or. Mm, yeah, good point. Well, moving on to another clip, and uh, this is Kelly Rackart. She has a different approach in terms of she said she doesn't aim to make message films. Rather, she wants to bring up questions and leave her art open for interpretation. So I think this is maybe where social media can also play a role as well. I mean, for me, the dream would be that someone uh, leaves the theater with their friend and they ha have both seen it differently and mm -hmm. would, you know, maybe have something to talk about when they go eat afterwards. Uh, you know, that it wouldn't be, I don't know, I've never tried to make a message film. I hope the films sort of bring up questions more yeah. than anything. So do you think a good movie brings up questions? Oh, absolutely. And it's it's nice to listen to... Kelly Reichardt and Todd Haynes back to back because uh, I think they're longtime friends. Yeah. They're part of the, the Portland film scene, as it were. And their films very much kind of inform each other in terms of having certain concerns about what it means to live as a free person in the United States, dealing with issues of discrimination or economic injustice. And yeah, and just how to survive in certain respects. When I think of Kelly's films, they're very much films about survival. When one lives as a survivor, it's not necessarily that there's these very simple rules or truths to how to live your life. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of contingency, and a lot of mystery mm. that one has to deal with. And I think her films really embody that mystery. Uh, they don't lead the audience by the hand. They present really compelling, at times desperate situations where the characters are just trying to, in some ways, make up the rules as they go along and, and find their way. Kelly Rockhart's films are really uh, an exquisite jewel, like really uh, typifies what's so great about watching a film in the cinema. And yet uh, I think our society has to somehow be 
reoriented right. in, in a way that can pay attention to the, a film like this, to value it and to seek it out. Yeah. And how do we reorient them? <laughs> yeah, the thing is, it's like these days it's all about, uh, you know, trends and hashtags. It's something that um, my colleague and fellow researcher, Raphael Dernbach, that one has to to think about the future of cinema, to think about the future of film festivals, we have to take a long, hard look at this attention economy, how different states of attention are are used, how they're directed, yeah. what type of attention can cinema produce, or what you know, how does it attract people? Yeah, that's why we organized this twenty four hour conversation in the future of attention, the last Locarno Film Festival, which yeah. got a bit of attention itself, <laughs> but it also raised yeah. this question of okay, what's what is this? conversation also doing at a film festival, you know, I thought we were here to watch movies, yeah. uh, not have a 24-hour conversation. But for me, in order to really understand where film is going, you have to have a conversation about it, a really intense and, and thoughtful conversation about it. And that's mm. what we proposed. Over 24 hours, three moderators, 24 speakers, you were one of them. Did you stay up for the whole 24 hours? <laughs> oh, no, because I, you know, I was in no. the festival for 11 days. I had right. a long, I, I was playing the long game. Right, <laughs> right. Wise, And I'm not sure if Raphael stayed up for it. So you and Raphael, you um, collaborate together as well for the professorship. So when he came to you with this idea, idea where you're like, dude, <laughs> this is a bit, you know. Uh, I, was, I thought it was a great idea. I was like, well, like, let's, let's just bring it up to the festival, see what they do. I, I, I you know, it wasn't in my position to uh, say yes or no to it. It was up to the festival. And I was really delighted that the festival went with it. Yeah. yeah, we need new approaches for engaging the audience. We cannot take the audience for granted. I think that's just an important thing that festivals have to keep in mind. But use that as an opportunity to come up with new ideas, yeah. uh, new ways of, of delighting the audience and getting them to think about cinema. And uh, I guess one of the best ways to come up with some new ideas is to ask questions. We've got a clip of Raphael discussing the importance of asking the right questions when it comes to predicting the future. I really um, like to think and talk with people about how they imagine the future. And I think in all these different projects, it's really about not so much about um, right, finding the right future or how it actually will be, but finding better questions to ask for how the future could be. Oh. Um, so oftentimes working with organizations, but also working with our students, it's not so much to really find that one future um, right. or that one future scenario that shows how the future is going to be, but really like a range of possibilities that give you a better picture how it could be. So what kind of questions should we be asking then? Or should, you know, the film world be asking to the new cinephiles? Listening to Raphael just now, yeah, it really is about that openness, just opening doors for people to go through. Just being able to ask better questions about why are things the way they are? How does this relate to that? How do I take different things I'm learning from different classes and see how they uh, connect with each other yeah. and and what isn't making sense and actually take the things that are not making sense and use that to uh, pursue your, your curiosity further? Yeah, for me, it, it all connects to life itself. You can't escape your life through movies. Like Life, life is always going to be there. It's a question of how do movies and life reconnect. Mm -hmm. So we go and watch a movie for two hours. And how do we feel afterwards? What does it make us think? What does it make us want to do differently than we did two hours before? There was a time when I was, you know, young and underemployed and kind of frustrated with life. And I, I really escaped to movies. 
as the best version of life. <laughs> right. uh, I was watching like 20 movies a week, right. glued in front of the screen, just transported to one alternate reality after another yeah. and using it as an escape. But over time, I realized, well, no, you can't escape your life through movies. Like Life, life is always going to be there. It's a question of how do movies and life reconnect? And that's been a driving question for me uh, in this position and just in general. It's like, what proposition, what value... And, and what relevance do, do movies have for really reconnecting us back into our lives? Mm-hmm. So we go and watch a movie for two hours. And how do we feel afterwards? What does it make us think? What does it make us want to do differently than we did two hours before? Right. And when I think about my favorite movies, they really have that kind of quality of taking me outside of my reality, but not not as a final um, destination, mm-hmm. but as a way of bringing me back into the world with a completely different appreciation mm-hmm. and orientation than I had before. Mm-hmm. So that's what we practice in in um, in our teaching, and it's also the kind of energy that we want to bring to the festival. It's an interesting role that a filmmaker has to play within society as well. They have some kind of responsibility, I suppose, when they're making a film in terms of how they are perhaps manipulating perceptions somewhat, definitely emotions, if it's quite an emotional um, piece, but then also how society in return influences the the filmmaker as well. Mm -hmm. Well, when you talk about manipulation, in some ways that's the world we live in now. And that's another thing I get from from students is that uh, at, at this point they just kind of assume that any audiovisual material they see, a video on social media or a news report Mm. is going to be a manipulated version of reality. Mm -hmm. In some ways, this is what uh, media literacy has has brought us. It's like a, I don't even know if I want to call it cynicism. Like I, you know, um, you would say like, oh my God, this this generation must be so jaded because like, what do they even believe is real anymore? Right. But in some ways, they, having grown up in that type of, uh, that culture, they know how to play with it. Um, Mm. You know, it's not necessarily better or worse than generations before. It's just a different set of rules. I think there's still, as well, on the flip side, cinema can still be a place of refuge when you just want to switch off or you just want to be entertained or you want to escape from whatever's going on in your life. I think there's still a place for cinema there too, right? Well, that's definitely what Hollywood believes in. That's that's all they're offering (laughs) is escape. Yeah, escapism is, is more the norm than the exception. And as far as Hollywood is concerned, as far as movie theaters and uh, big budget productions, it's just what kind of escapism can we offer that people are willing to pay more money for Mm. as opposed to defaulting to the escapism of Netflix. In regards to escapism, but from the perspective of an actor, this is Aaron Taylor-Johnson, and he was saying about escaping into the role of a character. For him, it can be quite a cathartic process. The first love and draw and passion for me was acting and it became escapism for me. It became my therapy. It was very Mm -hmm. cathartic because it was the way I could escape um, what I was, you know, going through in life. And I think, you know, that always happens. You always sort of end up sort of sometimes art imitates life and sometimes you don't know it yet until you sort of look back and go, oh, that was interesting. So I was going through that and my character was this. Right. And and I think sometimes that is sometimes part of your journey when you, mm. you when you're picking and choosing things on your intuition and instinct. So it's quite an intimate relationship, isn't there, between an actor and the, the role that they're portraying and the audience. 
Yeah, it's interesting what he said about escapism because it reminded me of, again, like why I was watching 20 movies a week at a certain point just to escape, Mm -hmm. just to not have to confront yourself. My sense is that any great actor, and I'm sure he went through this version of this, that escapism eventually does lead you back to yourself. If you want to take acting seriously as a career, you you have to tap into that inner reality, those demons, those drives, learn to use that as the fuel and to develop the tools for for making use of all of that's inside of you that previously you didn't know what to do with and you just wanted to escape. And when I think about my favorite movies, they really have that kind of quality of taking me outside of my reality, but not not as a final um, destination, Mm -hmm. but as a way of bringing me back into the world with a completely different appreciation Mm -hmm. and orientation than I had before. In, and, and when I think about the next generation or this current generation, you know, they're not they're not making movies as we've known them traditionally, and yet they are engaged in their own forms of movie making. Um, when someone makes a TikTok video or when someone, uh, you know, makes a YouTube video, to what extent is that capturing some essence of cinema and um, expressing it in a way that we don't call movies, mm. but is is definitely part of this cinematic ecosystem. This is something you touched on in your talk during the uh, Future of Attention, and it was this concept of economics of attention, and you broke it down into two competing economic models. One is the long-form content adopted by companies such as Meta and Netflix, and the other was the micro-dosing, which you said lasts about 60 seconds, a model chosen by TikTok and similar platforms. Right. And it's weird to think of movies as like long form content now. Yeah. You know, 50 years ago, you would say, oh, I didn't watch, I didn't read the book, but I watched the movie. <laughs> you know, right. two hours of, of viewing instead of uh, many yeah. more hours of reading. And now it's a, a, a completely different scale. Cinema in the age of Netflix. Now, this was an offsite class that you held in a movie theater here in Locarno, it immediately sold out. During your presentation, you said the line, while you are watching Netflix, Netflix is watching you, which is terrifying to think about. Right. This is why the economics of attention is so important, because it's not just about a moral question of, oh, we need to pay better attention by watching more of certain things and watching less of others. But it's also understanding that today's media economy is built on this. And it is about media companies being able to monitor our media consumption activities through our devices, through our our online um, time spent watching this or that, Mm. and using this as the basis for developing new content, for marketing that content to us, and competing with other forms of content. So it's just a whole system in which our viewing produces value, uh, not just for ourselves, but for others. Is this what you called streamatization? Well, streamatization is kind of like one of the building blocks that streamatization by migrating so much cinematic content to digital streaming platforms uh, has allowed these companies to have a much bigger data pool by which to measure the performance of um, of their products upon us as viewers. Mm. So, in other words, streamatization has taken cinema away from the theater and has produced a new era of datafication mm. so that media content is now just uh, can be reduced to raw data by which to measure human attention yeah 
So human attention is like the the fuel that drives all of this. Wow. What are your thoughts then on binge watching? Oh, yeah, I'm so over it, I hope. Uh, <laughs> it's also apparent that Netflix has realized that binge watching has kind of peaked and they no longer release new series in entire batches. So now it's more of this model of maybe releasing the first or, or the first three episodes of a mm. series. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it, there's a, a new episode every week. This is sort of what platforms like HBO and others had devised because they were, they were more attached to the one episode a week model. And they were really freaking out when Netflix had just like, oh, let's just watch an entire season at once and it was really driving attention. I think it was just mm -hmm. the, the novelty of that approach that also fit how people had been binge watching things that were available on Netflix. Right. But I think people are realizing that it's not necessarily the healthiest way to consume content mm -hmm. and neither is it the most fulfilling because it's like if you watch so much at a time, how much do you really remember? It's a weird contradiction with peak television. You know, you're getting some of the best TV shows that have ever been made, but there's so many of them yeah. that they have less impact than they used to. I keep in mind this possibility of an equilibrium. I don't think we'll ever get there. But uh, what circumstances do we as individual viewers or consumers, as well as industries, need to have in order that we're really getting the most out of our time and out of what we choose to watch, what we choose to pay attention to? Mm. And how does that lead to just a more satisfying and enriching existence in mm. general? So it really leads to that question, the, these, these big questions. Are we coming to a point, do you think, where we're just too spoilt for choice as well? Huh. Well, there's, there's two sides to that. It's sort of like when you have too many choices, then that, that can actually trigger a crisis of like, okay, what am I, yeah. what should I really be paying attention to? And, and me as the quote unquote professor for the future of cinema, it's like, what do I need to be paying attention to? Right. Uh, you know, do I pay attention to what's happening specifically within the festival context? Because there are people like Marcus Duffner and Jonah Nazaro who are just, uh, they have complete command of the festival ecosystem in a way that I could never pretend to. But at the same time, I'm paying attention to what's happening in social media. I'm, I'm paying attention to what's happening in Netflix and the, the movie industry at large. I'm paying attention to what's happening just in the world and, and how the trends in the world, whether it's the Ukraine war or the climate crisis or efforts for greater social equality around the world, um, are driving the future of, of film culture and filmmaking. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot. And I'm not even talking about, you know, do I watch TikTok? Do I watch YouTube? Do I watch Netflix? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. you know, and it really has implications also for the cohesiveness of our cultural fabric, our mm -hmm. society, what exactly we have in common. Even if I am not watching the same things that you are, can we still have an appreciation for each other's realities? And so it's a, it's, a different, it's a different proposition for social cohesiveness, where we're not necessarily having the same experiences, but we can still connect by doing so. Well, as we start to draw this conversation to a close, Kevin, it's quite a big question for you. In the digital world that we live in, what do you predict for the future of cinema? Oh, I'm, <laughs> I would only say that, you know, the media landscape one or two years from now will be distinctly different than what it has been this year or the or last year. I mean, obviously, part of that is because we're no longer in a pandemic situation. Mm. But just the, the rate of change and the rate of new platforms, new services, new offerings is at a pace that is unprecedented. 
Um, you know, I mean, we've, you know, cinema was, has been dominant for decades. Television was dominant for decades. And then just in the last 10 years with streaming, with uh, streaming media, social media, the new metaverse possibilities, gaming, there's just, uh, y- y- you just don't know what's coming next. Mm. I just know it's coming and, um, we'll be talking about some things that we can't even predict, uh, at this moment. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, What a great conversation. There's only one thing left to do, and that's roll your closing credits. (laughs) What movie have you watched most in your life and why? I have not rewatched a movie possibly in decades, (laughs) maybe for reasons we've kind of touched on, because there's just so much stuff to watch. This question really takes me back to another lifetime. And it was just be films that I watched growing up on cable television because they'd just be playing over and over again. Right. So I would say a film like, well, actually Top Gun. It's nice. a weird confession because uh, I think there are a lot of ideological problems with this movie and how like pro-America it is. But at the same time, I grew up an American, so yeah. I, can't, I can't deny my truth. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. If you could have the Piazza Grande to yourself with your friends, what movie would you like to watch on there the most? Wow, I just feel like such a selfish question because it's mm-hmm. the, the Piazza Grande is this incredible space where you know thousands of people gather, and it would honestly be a little sad to just have a few people have exclusive access to this. It actually reminds me of when there was the pandemic and movie theaters were actually renting uh, cinemas to private parties, not just to watch movies, but if they wanted to play video games on a screen. So maybe that would be my answer. Uh, We wouldn't watch a movie. We would play a video game on the Piazza Grande screen just to see what it would be like. Why not? Wow. Okay. Um, you're directing a movie about your life. What would the opening and closing scenes look like? <clears throat> I think the opening scene would be, yeah, me at the Locarno Film Festival looking like, how did I possibly end up here? Because <laughs> I would have never imagined in my life that I would have this job doing what I do in th- this incredible part of the world. And then the closing scene... Yeah, I guess it would be the same. I mean, this, <laughs> and then it's, but it's not, it's, you know, for me, it's not, it's not the opening and closing. It's what, it, it's what happens in between. Nice. Uh, if you could create a new category of award at the Locarno Film Festival, what would it be and who would you give it to? We just launched this new category, which is the Green Pardo, which is the award for the film that has the strongest tie to themes of sustainability in the environment. I think it would be something along those lines of an award that really offers something beyond traditional definitions of cinema, a future of cinema award. Okay. Why not? That's That would tie perfectly with my job position. What are your hopes for the future of film festivals? Well, for film festivals, I hope they continue to thrive and I hope they continue to adapt to an ever-evolving reality that, on the one hand, seems to be a bit of a challenge, if not a threat, to their long-term sustainability. I'd like to see different ways in which they either provide an alternative to virtual and digital and streaming culture or 
find ways to incorporate that as part of their festivals. It's something that uh, Locarno is is exploring. Do we want to get into the metaverse? Do we want to do hybrid events? Uh, does that work to our advantage or not? And it's, and it's still an open question. Is today's art shaping society as it should? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I think art can always do better. I think art almost by definition fails. The reason why art fails is because those failures allow us to see life and reality in ways we, we wouldn't otherwise. Uh, art has to provoke, art has to disturb, art has to disrupt. So yeah, as long as it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, <laughs> then, that's, then it's doing its job. What about what can art and cinema do to improve people's lives? Oh, again, I, I think it's more about it's not what art can do for people. It's what people can do for art, <laughs> I think. You know, I, I don't think we should expect so much from art and cinema. I think we, we should meet it where it is and not, not treat it like this commodity that needs to serve us. You know, not this product, but something that we engage with just to, to, to raise questions about ourselves. And again, I, I think back to what uh, Kelly Reichardt had said. It's like, I'm not expecting anything from my audience other than that they get something out of it. Mm. I'm not going to predetermine what that is. So, uh, yeah, I think that the same goes for all great cinema. Mm. What's the biggest challenge today for cinema and culture? Ooh, well, cinema is one thing, culture is another. I mean, I'll tie the two together. I think cinema as a culture is, is really its greatest challenge. How does it remain engaged with different types of audiences who have different expectations and desires for what they want out of entertainment, what they want out of art, how they want to spend their time, that they want escapism on the one hand, but they also might want some, some kind of refreshment or, uh, or reinvigoration mm -hmm. that's not just about um, you know, watching things explode or, or really cool CGI landscapes, but really be provoked with ideas. So it's a question of how can all these different possibilities and needs be fulfilled through cinema and in doing so really have a rich and diverse culture around cinema. Final question. As the Locarno Film Festival is all about freedom, do you feel free? <laughs> uh, in a word, no, because this, <laughs> this job is, is something of a dream job. But this job also entails so many questions and considerations that uh, I've really had to take in and process over the course of the year. It has been the most demanding job of my life. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to use this vacation time to really re-engage with that question of freedom because it is vital. Mm. You know, I mean, and maybe it's I have this perfectionist nature where I just want to do the job really well. And I think in some ways that's gotten in the way of doing this not just well, but doing it with joy and inspiration. Yeah. And that's really what I want to bring to the festival going forward is, uh, is exactly that sense of freedom. And it's not about getting it right or, um, you know, having everything be quote unquote successful, but really bringing in a spirit of, of openness, discovery and, and pleasure I mean, it's what I wish for myself. It's what I wish for the festival. So that's that's my uh, 2023 resolution. Mm, uh, I so that. I have not felt free, <laughs> but I will. <laughs> <laughs>
And uh, on that note, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today, Kevin Beely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you for listening to Future Spectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support Future Spectives with your review and subscribe on all the major podcast platforms. This series is created and produced by Brand Audio Media.